Welcome to I'm Fine, You, brought to you by Maybelline New York, where we are normalizing the conversation around anxiety, depression, and mental health. Now here's your host, Chrissy Rutherford. Hello and welcome to I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline New York. Maybelline's Break Together initiative is dedicated to breaking the stigma around anxiety and depression while addressing challenges and providing resources to those in need. Hi, I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and on this podcast, we're channeling this mission into real-life conversations to help normalize talking about our mental health and provide tangible resources and guidance to anyone who might be struggling or who knows someone that is. Today, I am so excited to be joined by best-selling author, professor, researcher, and co-founder of the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, Dr. Kristen Neff. Kristen is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, conducting the first empirical studies on self-compassion more than 20 years ago. She has been recognized as one of the most influential researchers in psychology worldwide, and she's here with me now to talk all about the power of self-compassion and the importance of giving ourselves support and encouragement when challenges and difficulty arise in our lives. All right, Dr. Kristen Neff, welcome to the show today. I'm so excited to speak to you today. I don't think you have any idea. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here and talking with you about this. My best friend is actually a therapist, and she told me about your work a few years ago, and your meditations have absolutely gotten me through some really difficult and very anxious times. I've struggled with anxiety since I was a kid, but, you know, anxiety tends to reinvent itself and show up in different ways. And your meditations have really been such a solace to me. And I really need you to make an app so that they're just easily accessible on my phone all the time. <laughs> you say it's me, but it's actually not me. It's you. You should record your own voice oh. in your own meditation. Wow. I never thought about that, actually. And you're accessible 24-7 inside your own head, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> this is very true. But yeah, I think even though I've always been aware of self-compassion, I don't know, the meditations just did something very different for me. But yes, we're going to obviously get into all of this because obviously you are a pioneer of the study of self-compassion and its impact. You've conducted the first studies on it more than 20 years ago. As a researcher, what was it that made you think to yourself, like, this is what I want to focus on and investigate? Well, you know, I sort of practicing self-compassion before I started researching it. I actually learned about it when I learned mindfulness meditation. And the woman teaching the course talked a lot about the importance of self-compassion. And it just made such a big impact on me when I started consciously relating to myself with more understanding, warmth, and support. And then what had happened is I did two years of postdoctoral study after I got my PhD with a woman who was a self-esteem researcher and I started learning about some of the problems with self-esteem, like the need to be special and above average, uh -huh. and the fact that self-esteem is usually contingent on success. You know, do I look the way? Do I want to look? You know, am I popular? Am I successful? And it's a fair weather friend. It's not there for you when you really need it. 
And then meanwhile, I'm practicing self-compassion and going through hard times and seeing how self-compassion was like this really stable friend for me. And then I thought, well, if people study self-esteem, why can't they study self-compassion? So I needed a scale to measure it and, you know, it kind of started there. Yeah. You bring up a very brilliant point about how sometimes like how we think about ourselves is really tied to how successful we are, how good we are at something. And like I don't necessarily consider myself a perfectionist, but I am a high achiever and a lot of my identity is tied to what I have achieved through work. And, you know, you really do have to be mindful about separating your identity and like who you really are from what you do or what people kind of know you for. Because at the end of the day, it's like we're all humans. We're all worthy for just being exactly who we are despite the achievements. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I know that as well as the self-compassion work has started taking off. It's so easy to become identified with what you do in your sense of self. And you can even become identified with whether or not you're healthy psychologically or physically. You know, our ego can attach to almost anything. And that's the beauty of self-compassion is that the sense of worth that comes from it is unconditional. It comes simply from being a flawed human being, no matter where you are in the moment which is why it's so healing. It really is this kind of unlimited ocean of a sense of worthiness and value that we can tap into at any moment. Yeah. And you have written about how having compassion for oneself is really no different than having compassion for others, which a lot of times can be easier for people, right, to have compassion for others versus ourselves. So let's talk a little bit about what it means to be truly compassionate and how it differs from pity. Yeah. Well, first of all, there are some biological reasons why we tend to be more self-compassionate to others. Actually, the care system evolved to take care of our infants and group members so that we could survive. And what's more natural for us to survive is fight, flight, or freeze, right? And self-criticism, beating ourselves up, that's like fighting ourselves, or we we freeze and we ruinate, or we flee, we feel anxious, we've got to get away. So it's natural, right? So it's kind of natural that we're more compassionate to others and ourselves. But the good news is, is we can learn how to treat ourselves like we treat others. And this is where the difference between self-pity and self-compassion comes in. Because with self-pity, it's very self-focused. All we see is ourselves. We're very self-centered or we don't realize that other people have problems. And, you know, that self-focused stance is actually, first of all, it's not very helpful, but it's also not very accurate. When our sense of self becomes very small and our worldview becomes very small and kind of collapsed in on just our own little experience, we don't have a good perspective to draw on. Ironically, because we're used to giving compassion to others, when we give ourselves compassion, it's like we have to step out of ourselves and treat ourselves like we would treat someone else and say, wow, you're, ha- you're really struggling. You're having a hard time. You know, and that, and that perspective allows you not to be so identified with it and gives you a broader point of view. You remember that everyone struggles. The way we struggle is different. We don't want to minimize that or, or you know, paper that over. But it's nothing wrong with you for struggling. That's actually what it means to be human. And that's the big difference between self-pity and self-compassion is that sense of connectedness to others. But, you know, it's the same with compassion versus pity. If I said, Chrissy, I really pity you, you'd be like, you know, because what I'm saying is somehow I'm better than you or I'm separate than you. But if I say, hey, Chrissy, I've been there. I've struggled with similar things. 
then immediately there's a connectedness. And you feel that connectedness and that's compassion as opposed to pity. Same thing with ourselves. Right. I know. Even you just saying like you pity me, like I felt like this just like immediate sort of like gut reaction because, you know, it's like I definitely haven't heard anyone say that to me directly. <laughs> I know. But, you know, when I say, hey, I've been there, then immediately it's, oh, yeah, then you relax. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is just we all, this is our humanness, our shared humanity. So with self-compassion, it's the same thing. Nothing wrong with us. We aren't somehow isolated from other people. We're just dealing with our own version of our problems the best we can, like everyone else. Connecting to what you said earlier, too, is like a lot of times when I think about when I'm feeling really anxious, it's like I'm just like stuck in this little spiral of like, the thing that I'm worried about. And like, you literally cannot think about anything else. And it feels like your world is so small. And, you know, you're really just so self-focused and focused on what it is that's going wrong. So I think that's another reason why self-compassion is so great because, yeah, it forces you to take like a step back. Yes, exactly. Take a step back. And part of that's the mindfulness. So, you know, my model, there's three elements to self-compassion. There's the common humanity that we talked about. There's obviously the kindness, the warmth and support, but also mindfulness. Mindfulness is also what allows us to take a step back. So instead of being lost in the anxiety or the sadness or, you know, the judgment, we actually become aware of it. And the moment we become aware of it, we're no longer fused with it. That ability to step back means we do have a broader perspective and we can see, okay, what are my options? And is there another way to think about this situation in terms of what's happening? You know, is there any help I could get myself maybe in this moment? Or it just allows for much more flexibility in responding to what's happening as opposed to just reacting in that immediate need for survival, which again, we don't want to judge ourselves for doing that. We're designed by evolution do this. It means the systems are operating well, but they're operating a little too well. And then we need to tap into other systems that evolve like the care system, which, which is actually usually more effective in terms of things like mental health, certainly. Yeah. And now when it comes to self-compassion, you've broken it down into three elements. So I would love for you to take a moment and talk a little bit about the different elements, beginning with self-kindness versus self-judgment. Yeah, yeah. So because of evolution and also because of our culture, you know, how many of us were raised with the idea that we should be kind to ourselves? You know, we're taught we should be kind to others, but we kind of get the message that it's good to criticize ourselves and people will feel sorry for us if we do or that somehow it means we're you know, self-deprecating. So really making that switch to self-kindness instead of self-judgment. And that doesn't mean we can't use discernment. We still have judgment in the sense of, well, that that behavior is not effective or not helpful. We still have the ability to see what's working and what's not working. We don't judge ourselves. We don't blame ourselves for it. We kind of have a sense of warmth, a sense of care, a sense of encouragement, right? So yeah, maybe we do need to make a change, but not because we're inadequate, because we care about ourselves. We, out of kindness, we want to be healthier, for instance, to do something different. So that's self-kindness. And then the second is, which I mentioned, the common humanity piece. Instead of isolation, which is, again, our brains are, and this is how they work. They're designed when we're frightened, when we feel threatened. And let's say when you have anxiety, what's happening is your brain is feeling threatened. We're just designed to focus on our own survival at that moment. So what that means, though, is it 
feels like everyone else in the world is living a normal and problematic life. And it's just me who's having this anxiety or attack or, or just me who's made this mistake or just me who's feeling so sad or whatever else you're struggling with. So you have to consciously remember common humanity because our brain doesn't do it automatically. But our wisdom knows this. When we just remember, oh, wait a second, this is normal. I'm not the only one. This is actually part of what it means to be human. We get out of that rabbit hole. We can take the larger view. And also feeling connected to others. Because if you think about it, feeling isolated and alone is one of the scariest experiences we can have as human beings. There's actually a saying in evolutionary biology, a lone monkey is a dead monkey. So you can see how built in that is to our system. Like when we feel isolated and alone, we feel scared. The more we can remember our connection with others, you know, not only actually physically interacting, but just mentally feeling like we belong is really huge for that sense of safety. And then, like I said, the mindfulness. And really, that's the first step of self-compassion. So if you think of self-compassion as treating yourself like you'd treat a good friend you cared about, which is a very easy way to think about it. You know, imagine if your friend called you up and said, Chrissy, I'm so upset. I've, I've had this horrible thing happen. I need to talk. And you're like, excuse me, I'm too busy right now. Or you don't even pick up the phone. Right. But we do that to ourselves. We don't pick up the phone. In other words, we just push through. Like, I, I can't be bothered or I'm not going to acknowledge that I'm struggling. We either do that or we go the other extreme, which is if you called your friend up, you wanted to talk and they just talked over you and didn't give you a chance to speak and just talked about their own problems. That's when we dive in. So we, we either ignore our pain or we dive into it. We get lost in it, kind of the storyline of it. So again, we're, we're in that downward spiral. We have no perspective. But mindfulness gives us balanced perspective. It allows us to be aware of what's happening so that we aren't controlled by it. We have more choice about how we're going to respond to it. It's like stepping back. Oh, I'm really hurting. Yeah. I need some help. How, how can I help myself in this moment? You know, I think a lot of times, yeah, when we're really struggling and we are feeling isolated, there's a big part of us that like it's a practice, I think, is really what it comes down to, because like this isn't going to be second nature if this is the first time you are hearing about the act of self-compassion. Like you have to work at it, but the benefits are incredible. Yeah, well, the good news is, is you have to work at from this kind of, you might say, the small mind or the small self or everyday mind changing those habits. And also our brain is designed to basically freak out when things are problematic. But awareness itself, this is interesting. Just when we kind of step out of our small self and we get the bigger perspective of just awareness, compassion actually arises pretty naturally. You don't have to generate compassion. When you see a baby, you don't have to like work to feel compassion for that baby. Our heart just naturally opens. And so it's also part of our nature and it's also part of awareness. So we have to work to let go of the habit of self-criticism and the habit of being But once we do, it's actually less work to be kind to ourselves than it is to beat ourselves up. You think about it, right? Less energy, less work, it's easier, it goes better. That's the good news. It's actually once you get out of the habit of self-criticism, as self-compassion is effortless, it's easy, it flows. And is there any research on what self-compassion does to our brains, like on a neurobiological level, just like meditation? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, so for one, one of the areas that it affects is the amygdala, right? So as you know, the amygdala is involved in a lot of feelings of anxiety, for instance, as the fight, flight, or freeze response. And the whole sympathetic nervous system, which is cortisol activation, um, heart rate goes up. So what self-compassion does is it actually works on the nervous system. So it calms down amygdala reactivity. It engages those parts of the brain engaged in compassion, for instance. It increases heart rate variability. It lowers cortisol. So it really changes our whole response because what it does is it helps us feel safe. We're more aware of what's happening so we aren't lost in fight, flight, or freeze. We feel safer. We feel connected to others. We feel safer. And we're there for ourselves and we support ourselves when we're warm instead of attacking, we feel safer. So our body really registers strongly that sense of safety, which is one of the reasons it's so powerful. So the opposite of self-compassion can be self-criticism, as we've talked about, which can be a key factor in many people's struggles with mental health and working on being self-compassionate. Why is it so important for people to stop ignoring their pain with, you know, that kind of like stiff upper lip mentality? Yeah. So we like to say a resistance is futile, like the aliens, right? Because when you ignore your pain and you pretend it's not there, it's like you're suppressing it. And what we know from psychology is when you suppress an emotion, it actually, it's like putting pressure on it. You're constricting it and you're putting pressure on it and it actually doesn't work. I mean, if it worked to ignore pain and it didn't have any consequences, I'd say go for it. Ignoring pain, just it doesn't work. It actually makes it come back more intensely. There's a saying, what we resist persists and grows stronger. And also your body is registering the difficult emotion, even if you're suppressing it consciously, and it's impacting your body. So we really need to find a way to process these difficult emotions, but we have to be able to do so without being overwhelmed. And this is what self-compassion does. It allows us to relate to difficult thoughts and emotions with some space, which the mindfulness gives us, which is a sense of connectedness and safety, and then the kindness, the warmth, the care. And again, this really important question, what do I need to take care of myself right now? The answer to that is going to be different for different people in different situations. Yeah, absolutely. And now that we've talked a little bit about what self-compassion really is, let's talk about what it is not. Why is self-compassion not self-pity or self-indulgence or even self-esteem? Right. Yeah. So it often gets confused in terms of you know what self-compassion is and what the consequences are. And that's what's great about the research. There's almost 5,000 research studies on self-compassion now. So we really know, for instance, that self-compassion is not self-indulgence, which is, you know, people think self-compassion means just going easy on yourself, taking a break. Well, sometimes going easy on yourself and taking a break is what you need for health. But sometimes it's not. Like if you're a high-level athlete, going easy on yourself and skipping your training routines is not actually in your best interest is not helping you. And we find that with self-compassion, people do, they're concerned, well, what do I need right now? And that's linked to things like more exercise, better eating habits, going to the doctor more often. So self-indulgence is anti to self-compassion because it means short-term pleasure at the expense of long-term harm. And if you care about yourself, you're going to want to do things that are healthy in the long run. 
Another big one you said is the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem. So self-esteem is a judgment or an evaluation of worth. That word esteem means like a judgment of worth. Like I said, it's typically contingent. It depends on, am I successful? Am I attractive? Do people like me? Those are usually the three biggest things we base our self-esteem on. Again, it's a fair weather friend. It's there for you in the good times, but it deserts you when you make a mistake or you fail or people reject you or you don't look the way you want to look or you, you, know, you make a mistake. And self-compassion, the source of self-worth comes from being human. There is no other qualification you need to have self-compassion other than you know, being a human being. You might even say animals deserve self-compassion, but they don't have the same sense of self, so they probably can't have self-compassion. Any human being who has a sense of self, that, that's the only precondition, and that means it's totally stable. So for instance, we did one research study where we looked at people's sense of self-worth that day, like, how are you feeling about yourself today? And we looked at that, we measured it 12 times over a period of eight months, and it was the level of self-compassion people had, how they related to themselves in times of suffering, that predicted stability of self-worth, not like their judgments of I'm a good person or I'm a bad person. So it provides stable self-worth. But the number one, I got to say this because number one block to self-compassion gets in the way of everyone is the belief that it's going to undermine your motivation. We really believe we need to be hard on ourselves to get moving, to reach our goals. And there's a reason for that. It's because it kind of works. You know, there are people who get through med school on self-criticism, you know, or the coaching metaphor is good here. There are some coaches who get a good performance out of the people they coach through criticism, you know, is it, so it kind of works, but it, it also backfires because people stop um, believing in themselves. It may develop anxiety. They may develop fear of failure. And then if they do make mistakes and they just may give up altogether. Criticism doesn't help us learn from our mistakes. And failure is our best teacher. So a more effective coach, first of all, a good coach gives really good feedback, very clear feedback. This is working. This isn't working. You know, that's compassionate. But also says, but I believe in you. Your worth isn't dependent on success. How can I help? And that warm and supportive attitude, the research is very clear, is actually a more effective motivator than self-criticism. Yeah. We see that there are people who are really driven by the fact that maybe, you know, a parent or a teacher growing up told them like, oh, they were never going to amount to anything or they weren't going to be successful. And some people really take that and they use that to really propel them towards success. But it doesn't always work like that. A lot of people then like buy into what they've been told that they're never going to be anything. Yeah. So again, it can work sometimes for some people, but even when you get that achievement, then you still aren't happy. Good isn't good enough or it's never good enough and you'll never truly feel worthy. Whereas if you really care about yourself, you could also reach your goals. For instance, we did train, a, speaking of NCAA athletes, we, we just trained a bunch of NCAA athletes in self-compassion, helping them use self-compassion. First of all, give them really clear feedback about things in their training routine or things they need to improve that was important to them. But to use encouragement and support as opposed to hard self-criticism to make improvements. And they improved more than people who hadn't taken the training. So your standards can still be high. You can still shoot for the moon. 
But what happens if you fall a little short? Do you criticize yourself so that you get anxious and depressed and like give up? Or do you say, hey, I'm here for you. It's okay. You fell short. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. Let's try again, not because you have to, but because you want to. And it's actually more effective in the long run. I think I don't use self-compassion as much when it comes to my work life. And so this is also like kind of giving me something to think about because, you know, I am someone who I think at this stage in my life, it's like I only do the things that I believe I'm good at. But of course, like once in a while, you know, something goes weird or I feel like I said something the wrong way. And I can definitely like ruminate over those types of things. And, you know, I'm like, why did I say that? Oh, my God, I can't believe I said that. And, you know, I eventually like move on, but it can be really difficult. And it can interfere with learning. That's the thing. We learn from our mistakes and our failures. It's not pleasant, but that's just the truth. That's how we learn. And so if you can, you know, just say, okay, I made a mistake and you can feel badly about it. It's only human. But what can I learn from this mistake? That's really what's going to help the most. Absolutely. And earlier in our conversation, I mentioned that you conducted a first empirical study on self-compassion more than 20 years ago. And since that time, thousands of our studies have been conducted on it and its effects. So I was hoping you could take a moment here to talk about what the scientific research says about the power of self-compassion? Oh, well, it's really just mind-blowing. If you really look at the evidence, this should be taught in every single school, I think, you know, for anyone in a professional training program. Because, first of all, the link with mental health is very strong. When you stop criticizing yourself and feeling so alone and you feel more supported and feel more connected, you know, people are happier, they're more satisfied with their lives, they're less stressed, they're less anxious, they're less depressed, and they're less likely to burn out. They're more motivated, they're actually more successful as well, their performance increases. And it's also good for physical health because, of course, there's a mind-body connection. And so the more you are mentally calm and kind of feel safe and in a good place, the better your body functions, your immune system, for instance, works better. Here's the other thing. Sometimes people think self-compassion is selfish, but self-compassion is actually a wonderful gift to give to others. First of all, it gives you the resources to care for others, so you're less likely to burn out when you're actually replenishing yourself with self-compassion. But the way human minds work is we impact each other. We've got mirror neurons. Our, our brains, we're always kind of feeling what other people are feeling. And if you're grumpy and self-critical and depressed, and everyone who's interacting with you kind of resonates with your feelings of being grumpy and critical and depressed. But if you're kind of kind and warm and understanding toward yourself, then every single person you interact with gets the gift of your presence. And it's really good for parents, for instance. If you can model that for your kids, that's amazing. So they learn that that's a good way to be with yourself. So it's not just good for yourself, it's good for others as well. Exactly. I feel like obviously that goes from working on your mental health across the board. I think a lot of times people do see self-care or going to therapy as being sort of these like selfish practices because you're only going to therapy to, you know, complain about your parents or complain about, you know, everyone else in your life. But at the end of the day, it is helping you to become you know, a better person, more compassionate, have more awareness, more perspective. And that will then also radiate through your relationships that you have with others. 
Yeah, absolutely. Your personal relationships and also your work life, you know, you'll be more effective in your professional life. You know, and just relating to especially to people getting help for the mental health challenges, self-compassion is so key because we have so much, we shame ourselves so much in this society as if we're all supposed to have it all together just naturally, right? It's amounts of weakness if we have some mental health struggles. One of the things self-compassion does is interesting, even though the word self is in there, it actually takes the focus off the self. We aren't in total control of how our brains work or what we think about. We certainly aren't in control of our past experiences or of our culture, how our culture relates to us. And all these things impact our mental health. So self-compassion, we really take the self out of it. We're just human beings, right? We're just human beings, part of this interconnected web. And we start realizing how it's just our place in the interconnected web that actually is largely responsible for what we're experiencing. So when we have compassion for that, we don't need to have any shame or blame. You know, it's not our fault, although it is our responsibility in that no one else is going to get you into that therapy couch, right? So you don't have to blame yourself. There's no shame in it. It's actually what connects you to other people. And yet you can take responsibility for doing what you can to help yourself, which in turn helps other people. Absolutely. And when it comes to showing self-compassion, what are some of the biggest blocks you've observed people having in your research? Yeah, well, so I can say the biggest block is the belief that will undermine your motivation. But all of these come up, the belief that it's selfish, the belief that it's self-indulgent, that it's, you know, a form of self-pity. But there's another block that comes up, which is the belief that some people don't feel worthy of self-compassion. And this is really a difficult one. I mean, the other ones I can show you research and show you the data points and maybe convince you. But the sense of not being worthy is a hard one because often these messages have been internalized, right? Internalized from our family, maybe internalized from the culture, somehow your racial group or the way you look or your gender, your gender identity, all these, you know, we get these messages that somehow we're less worthy. And that impacts us, right? So the sense of not being worthy of self-compassion is really a big block for many of us. And so really the best way to work with that is just to have compassion for it. It's like we just, you start where you are. Okay, I don't feel worthy of compassion. Like, Oh, you let your heart melt a little bit at like, I'm a human being who doesn't feel worthy of compassion. And, you know, when you kind of allow in some warmth to that, that pain, that's a really good place to start, especially when you start realizing, and maybe you were told it's your fault, but really understanding that it's not your fault. When a baby comes out of the womb, they don't have to go to graduate school in order to be worthy of compassion. It's just intrinsic to our humanity. But somewhere along the way, we've received messages. By the way, these messages are often designed to control us. This is where fierce self-compassion comes in. It's like questioning these messages is also a way of saying, hey, wait a second. That's not true. you know. And kind of that fierce protective energy, which is also natural, can also arise towards yourself in terms of your worthiness to experience self-compassion. Right. I mean, yeah, of course, we get so many messages from birth around how we're supposed to act, how we're supposed to yes. dress, how we're supposed to interact with others, how we're supposed yes. to learn and where we're supposed to go to school and who we're supposed to end up with. And yeah. there is like this whole map that 
everyone is just supposed to follow. And if you go outside of that line by just one step, you know, somehow you're weird, you're doing it wrong. And you have to be someone who is kind of constantly questioning the things that you are told throughout life. That's right. So one of the biggest gifts of self-compassion is this idea of unconditional self-worth. Because when your worth isn't so dependent on people approving of you or, you know, those markers of success, that other people often create those markers. One of the most powerful findings of the research is that self-compassion is linked to authenticity. So when you care about yourself and your value is kind of intrinsic, then that gives you the freedom to express yourself exactly in your own unique way, because every single person is different. And so being authentic not only is it good for mental health, but it also means if you're authentically you, you're more likely to find your place in the world, one that really suits you and your talents and your abilities and your interests and your love. Yeah, absolutely. And let's also talk about your recent book titled Fierce Self-Compassion. It's all about helping women harness kindness to speak up and claim their power and thrive. So I would love to take some time here to talk a little bit about your book and what it means to show yourself fierce self-compassion. Yeah, so there's really two faces of self-compassion, which I call the fierce and the tender. And we all need both. So tender self-compassion is more the accepting aspect of self-compassion. We accept ourselves. We also accept our difficult emotions and kind of our flawed humanity. Very important. But compassion... and The technical definition of compassion is concern with the alleviation of suffering, right? And so part of our suffering is caused by the fact we don't accept ourselves. But it's not just about acceptance. We also need to change things that are causing suffering. And this isn't really necessarily ourselves as people, but some of our behaviors. We can accept ourselves unconditionally while also saying this behavior is causing harm to myself or others. And also the behaviors and situations of others. So drawing boundaries, saying it's not okay for you to treat me that way is an incredibly important act of self-compassion. Speaking up, working against injustice, saying no, and also motivating change. I call it fierce self-compassion. It's metaphorically, it's like mama bear, like the tender mama bear. And it's also like mama bear, you know, both. It has nothing to do with gender, but it does in terms of socialization. So again, not, not biological sex or even gender identity if you're trans or cisgender. But if you were raised as a woman or a girl, girl or woman, you were raised to believe that you could be tender and sweet, especially to others. You can't be too fierce. Oh, and if you get angry, we don't like angry women or, or women who are too ambitious. You know, we don't like ambitious women. But if you're raised as a boy or a man, you're told you can't be too tender. It's okay if you're fierce. You can get angry. You can conquer the world. But if you're too sensitive, you know, you're going to be bullied. And this is the problem because it's like yin and yang. We need both to be complete and whole. We need to be both tender and fierce. And so gender role socialization prevents us from being integrated. And the reason I wrote the book for women is not that men also, they also need to be, again, people raised as men. They also need that integration. But it just became too complicated to talk about the blocks for people raised as men and the plots for people raised as women. So I focused the book more on women. It was also kind of came out of the Me Too movement and just seeing how at least a contributor 
to the situation we got ourselves in, which is rampant sexual abuse and exploitation, is because women were socialized not to say anything, not to speak up. And that's a problem, you know? And in this interesting, this fierce self-compassion. So for instance, I, I've noticed a lot of people of color actually talk about the fact that they need to practice the fierce self-compassion first before the tender. Because of, you know, that, that feeling of, I can't have anything if there's not justice in the world. But for some people, the fear self-compassion is actually, they need to lead with that before the tender acceptance. And for other people, they need the tender acceptance first. It's just who you are, your, your own personality, but also everyone needs both. That's, that's the bottom line. Everyone needs both. And we need to look at those blocks to us being able to fully integrate and be our fully authentic selves. Yes, absolutely. So this podcast is all about destigmatizing conversations surrounding mental health and providing resources, which is something that you do on your website, self-compassion.org, my number one visited website, where there are tons of free resources, practices, and guides available to help people on their self-compassion journey. But before we wrap up our conversation today, I was hoping that you might take a few minutes to personally lead our audience on a guided self-compassion exercise. Uh, yes, I'd love to. One of my favorite tools to teach is called the self-compassion break. And basically, we just intentionally bring in um, mindfulness, a sense of common humanity and kindness to something we're struggling with, some sort of emotional pain or problem we're facing in our lives. So yeah, I'll leave that if you don't mind. Take it away. I'm going to close my eyes. It helps to close your eyes so you can go inward. So you may want to. And I'd invite you to think about something that you're struggling with in your life right now. Don't pick a huge problem because if you're overwhelmed, you're not going to be able to learn the practice. But maybe, you know, a, a work issue that's come up for you or a health issue or something in a relationship and you're experiencing some challenging emotions, maybe you're frustrated or you're sad or you're feeling badly about yourself for some reason. So just take a moment to think of the right situation to work with. Just choose one. Just bring the situation to mind. You know what's happening, who are the people involved, if there are other people and so the first thing we want to do is bring some mindful awareness to the pain we're experiencing, right? So just saying to yourself something like, this is really hard. We want to do this in a balanced manner. We don't want to ignore it, but we also don't want to dive into it. We just want to acknowledge and validate this moment is difficult. It's, I'm suffering right now. And we also want to remember that the humanity of what we're experiencing. You know, there's nothing wrong with you for feeling this way or having this happen. Uh, you, you certainly aren't alone. There are, I'm sure, thousands of people who feel something similar as you. So just reminding yourself that it's things like this, feelings like this, situations like this, they're part of being human. They're part of life. I'm, I'm not alone. This is actually connects me to others. And then finally, bringing in some kindness, some, some words of kindness and support. 
And, uh, you know, what you say is going to depend on your situation. And, and one way to uh, generate what to say is to think, if you had a really good friend who was going through exactly what you're going through, what you say to them? Maybe something like, you're okay, exactly as you are. Or, I care about you, how can I help? Or, I'm so sorry, this is so hard for you, I'm here for you. Maybe, you know, this moment, it will pass. Right? So try saying any words of um, maybe comfort or acceptance or maybe encouragement to yourself that are the, the types of things you might say to a friend who is in the same situation. Okay, then letting go of the, the practice and opening your eyes. And, you know, you can do that. That was maybe five minutes, but you can also just do that in 30 seconds. You know, this is hard. It's, it's only human. It's part of life. And I deserve some kindness right now. You know, it doesn't have to be. You can do this going to the bathroom or just taking a little pause at your computer. Just to, re to really remember, it helps to remember bring all of self-compassion to uh, our difficulties. Absolutely. And as I said, you know, I've been doing a lot of these practices and they help me so much, especially, you know, when I'm anxious, I carry a lot of feeling in my gut. My stomach will be burning and just tight. And, you know, sometimes it's even just like taking the moment to like acknowledge the feeling that I'm having in my stomach and like hold my hand over my stomach and put my hand on my heart as you often direct in the, you know, self-compassion meditations. And you know, I can really feel the feelings like start to dissipate by just like acknowledging that they're there and, you know, reminding myself that I'm going to be OK. And yeah, it's just it's been really, really impactful for me. So I thank you so much for doing what you're doing because it's helping a lot of people. Oh, well, well same here. I think it's just so important, this destigmatizing, de you know, um, our mental health challenges and bringing compassion to it. It's just so crucial because uh, we're all just doing the best we can moment by moment. We really know. are. We really are. Thank you so yeah. much for joining us today, Kristen. It was so lovely to have you. Thank you, Christy. It was my pleasure. I want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Kristen Neff for coming on the show today and talking about the power and importance of self-compassion. For more information on Dr. Neff and her pioneering work, you can check out her website at self-compassion.org or the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion's website at centerformsc.org. And remember, we're here to provide access to mental health resources and support those who need it most. So for more information, visit maybelline.com slash together. And don't forget to make sure you're subscribed to I'm Fine, You. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and this has been I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline, New York.